This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello and welcome back. This is Seth Dare, and I'm here with JJ Genflone. Hello, JJ. Hey, Seth. So what shall we talk about today? Uh, today we are going to be talking about the super interesting and kind of murky Saudi Arabia and trafficking situation. So the idea of people being trafficked both into and out of Saudi Arabia, uh, which is kind of, I think, an interesting departure just from all of the sort of U.S.-focused reports we've been doing recently. All right, and... Uh... Saudi Arabia has had an interesting history on the tip report. Mm-hmm. Mostly, they've been tier three, except for, and this is 2001 to 2016. In 2003 and 2004, they were tier two. And then in 2015 and 2016, they're on the tier two watch list. Though one could debate whether things have actually changed over that period, but that gets to be like, where do we want to rank them? And do we want to penalize them at least the way the TVPA used to be? Uh, it used to be that countries in Tier 3 may be subject to certain sanctions where, where we might withdraw or withhold non-humanitarian, non-trade-related foreign assistance. Mm-hmm. And now we've just gone to, there might be certain restrictions on assistance, which sounds a lot less threatening. But in fairness, if we have a tool that's a penalty, but we're not going to use it because we don't want to hurt allies or frenemies, then we probably shouldn't have it threatened. Exactly. And so we see this a lot in terms of the the tier designations the the final tier designations and then what the U.S. does about those tier designations are often set by the Secretary of State. So you see a lot of, I don't want to say manipulation, but certainly a lot of subjective decisions being made about what tools to be used from the toolbox and why not to use them. And so it seems like a very inefficient system if you're taking it from not so much the tip report as a tool of international relations, but as a tool of sort of a a ethics committee Mm -hmm. so one of the things that i think is super interesting about saudi arabia which as of 2016 is on the tier two watch list is the fact that this idea of being on a watch list and seth i don't know if you maybe want to explain just really quickly what the difference is between a watch list and a tier three again just to really drive that home it relates to what we've already talked about, that there's a reluctance to put some countries in Tier 3. So in the beginning, there were three tiers, and that didn't give enough flexibility, so they created the Tier 2 watch list, and a country was only allowed to be on that list, on that rating for a couple of years before they would end up having to go to Tier 3, where we would do sanctions or something similar and so now countries who are trying sort of but are on probation are on the tier 2 watch list it's all still a a bit ambiguous (laughs) yeah 
that's the only yeah that's a problem we we haven't yet mentioned on our podcast that the methodology in the tip report that is published used to be a couple lines and now they've added some more lines that still don't explain how tiers are come up with so we don't know exactly how everything is weighted and by we we mean pretty much anyone who's outside of the state department the tip report has pretty good reporting on methodology which is to say they've gone from and they report from publishing one page on their methodology to i think publishing nine which seems like that's not really great but for for people working in the human trafficking field we were all kind of really excited because it's very rare for any organization to to actually have transparent methodology but again if you're not in the room where this decision is made actually being able to see the real reasons why things were determined is is almost impossible so saudi arabia what's special about saudi arabia in relation to trafficking Saudi Arabia is kind of a unique case, I think, because they have sort of what I consider to be one of the most interesting types of human trafficking, which is a domestic worker. And what a domestic worker trafficking is, is this is someone who is working very closely with a family in the home, generally with only one or two workers present. So this is the trafficking of someone who is then the nanny to your children or the gardener in your home or the cook in your home. And so I think with domestic worker trafficking or sort of the trafficking of people for the purposes of work in the domestic uh, servitude sphere is that you're seeing sort of this return to slavery as it existed in the United States where it's interfamily and sort of the normal human relationships that form between the person who's watching and caring for your children or the person who's preparing all of your meals, the person who's cleaning all of your longings, that sort of weird sort of trust arrangement is being completely subverted by the fact that the person who you're relying on for these very intimate tasks is being held in slavery. And so just personally, I think it's a very sort of interesting thing because this is a very personal form of human trafficking. When we talk about things like uh, conflict minerals or sort of generational debt bondage in the garment industry, most people who most most people have a at least the plausible deniability of being far away from it. Certainly people buying the t-shirts that are low priced here in the US, if they have heard about it, they've heard that it's exploitative labor in only some places. They don't have that direct interpretation. And when you talk about familial debt bondage, it's generally one family owning a huge population of people that are held separate from where the owner lives. But in domestic servitude, they're right in your home. You know, you're, there's only a wall that separates you from the person that you're subjugating. And so I think that it gets, domestic servitude, I think, points out something that is vital to an understanding of the human trafficking field, which is that this human trafficking involves a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to be a human being and the dignities and rights sort of held within it and sort of the othering of a person when it's necessary for you. And I think a lot of times in human trafficking, because people are so nervous about making the illusions, I think, to modern human trafficking to sort of transatlantic slavery or historical forms of slavery, that they don't make this connection you know, like that human trafficking is now sort of an economic evil as opposed to a moral issue. 
And I, I just don't hold that to be true. So that's why I think Saudi Arabia is an interesting case. Um, to pull directly from the 2016 tip report, it is that Saudi Arabia, it is estimated that Saudi Arabia is one of the largest employers of domestic workers in the world. Some domestic workers experience severe mental, physical, and sexual abuse by their employers. Some foreign citizens who have experienced indicators of trafficking have been placed on death row. And due to Saudi Arabia's requirement under its sponsorship of the Khalafa system, which is a system, just, just to break from the quoting, is that when you are a foreign worker and so you're there on a work visa, in order to leave the country legally, you need to have an exit visa granted from your employer. So you need to actually be released from working from your employer in order to leave legally. And to try to leave without that exit visa could result in you either A, being sent back to your employer, or B, you facing uh, charges, like criminal charges. So as a result of that Kalafa system, some domestic workers are forced to work for months or years beyond their contract term because their employers will not grant them an exit permit. And so as a result of that, I think that what you then see is this long then possibility for, via this sort of legal system, for the continuation of holding domestic workers in bondage. And then there's an additional point to this, which is that these are primarily female domestic workers, nannies, cooks, housemaids. Um, in some cases, you even have sort of like a nursemaid caring for um, an elder in the home or someone who's ill. These are primarily female domestic workers. So these are tasks that are normally set for female workers who in sort of the patriarchal system of Saudi Arabia have even less option for seeking out help or assistance if they're being abused by their employers because of their position as a woman in the country. Uh, the men who are in the country, some are domestic workers in private residences, and those make up sort of like the gardeners, the handymen, the cleaners. Uh, they might be drivers of vehicles um, for women who don't drive. And you might also have sort of someone who maybe is a guard if there's, if there's a large complex or, or a housing sort of situation that's multifamilial. But those men off are, are still held under the same legal system. So when we do see people who get away, it tends to be men, just because they had more mobility within Saudi Arabia to seek assistance. But it's very, uh, very rare for women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly it's difficult if you're in the house where it's easily to keep somebody controlled. Countries where you're tied to your employer, that part is common, which has pros mm -hmm. and cons. Uh, that's true of sheep herders in Colorado. That's true when um, if I were to go get a work permit in Australia, I would be tied to one employer for my four months there. Although it isn't always the case where my exit visa is tied to my employer. But uh, that part is similar. Um, I'm also looking at uh, an article in The Nation that I had written a blog post about, about at the Human Trafficking Center. Mm -hmm. This is one case where women from Madagascar went to the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia, and some of them were abused. And in this case... The, there was a coup in 2009, and there had been a lot of 
women who moved from rural areas to the city. And after the coup, there were certain sanctions or certain pulling of programs that uh, related to trade, such as with the United States. And so after that, there wasn't work, and lots of women went abroad to places like uh, Saudi Arabia and Lebanon. And some of them ended up being in positions where they were controlled or raped or otherwise. And so while that wasn't the case for all of them, that's how it can happen. And when you're already in a vulnerable state because you need work and then you go abroad and hope to make a lot of money, and then you are in a domestic situation where your employer is controlling your movement and potentially worse, it's, it's a really tough and unfortunate situation. And then added here, too, is the sort of language component of human trafficking. And I don't know, if Seth, if you've ever experienced this, but when I started telling my friends and my family that human trafficking is my, my field, it's, it's what I'm pursuing a doctorate in, after the standard questions of, like, what are you going to do with that? And, you know, you're ruining Thanksgiving for talking about slavery. Uh, comes the inevitable, I get the question of, like, well, how much am I worth? I don't know if people have asked you this. People ask me all the time, how much would they go for? Um, I think it's an intention from from them to sort of lighten the mood about the, about the subject. And also just a human curiosity of, you know, what would I... What would I go for on the international labor market? And one of the things that I always have to tell people is, well, one, not a heck of a lot. As an adult, you know, whether you're lower class or, or middle class American, um, because you speak English. And English is sort of this weird great equalizer because of the exception of if you're being held in an extremely rural area in certain countries, there's always at least the possibility that someone speaks English or will be willing to attempt to speak English with you should you be in trouble and asking for help. The problem is when you have things like hundreds of workers coming in from Thailand, Laos, Cambodia, Mauritania into Saudi Arabia who don't speak Arabic and who are in a state where there already are a number of sort of primary languages spoken, but none of them certainly are these East Asian languages you have a big problem of translation. So it can be very hard, even if someone is asking for help or requesting help to understand that that's what they're saying or to find someone who can communicate with them in their language to get them the help that they need. And we see this pretty much, I would say, in, in every country, um, which I think maybe makes, I think is interesting is that when we're seeing trafficking of people in the US or the UK, it's far more common for there to be a really big influence, like a, a really big focus on, you know, moving people quite often from house to house or city to city so that they don't form the relationships where they feel like it's safe to talk. Whereas in other countries where it, even if someone is able to get out of the house, they might have a very hard time finding someone who can communicate with them. There's not quite this fear of, well, they're going to get out and request for help because who's, who's going to talk to them? And, and how are they going to communicate? And I think one of the best sort of examples of this, as I mentioned really briefly, is that Mauritanian women coming into Saudi Arabia. And Mauritania is sort of an interesting 
case of a country. Um, I don't know, Seth, if you want to explain maybe briefly what Mauritania is. Well, it has been the one country that officially still has legal slavery, although that mm. has been changing to where it's a little more gray. Well, and Mauritania is also a primarily Islamic state in North Africa. And so one of the things that you have is that when Saudi Arabia opens up it migration channels, shall we say, or says that there are work permits or starts advertising for jobs in the beginning of 2005, a lot of people in Mauritania jumped on it because the country, as it sort of transitions out of this legal slavery moment that it's having in time, it has a really high unemployment rate, something over 30%, which is sort of crazy in this globalized world, and extreme widespread poverty. So when you have a state like Saudi Arabia that opens up and says, hey, we share a similar religion, we share similar values, we share a similar uh, base language, come work for us, you see a mass migration of men and women. And they were recruited on these points as there is a, a fundamental similarity between our two countries. You should come work for us. And it was women primarily to be nurses or teachers uh, or nannies in some cases. And then men to be drivers, waiters, and domestic workers in the home. And of that domestic worker, it's probably something like cleaner or a guard. But instead... What quickly popped up in 2015 is this black market of people who were bringing Mauritanians into Saudi Arabia legally, but then once they were in country legally, started moving them throughout the country and moving them into rural areas and then moving them into closed environments where they wouldn't be able to speak with someone outside of the home. So even when there is this option to have language to communicate, you're very limited. So what in particular workers anecdotally have reported is having to work 18 hours a day, not having breaks, not being given any time off on weekends or paid overtime, and then of physical and sexual harassment, including rape um, of both men and women, on to Mauritanian people who are working. And when when I was doing some research into domestic workers in Hong Kong, one of the current most common things that came up for people who were being held in a trafficking situation domestically was sort of this idea of the policing of sleep. So if you're working 18 hours a day and it is hard labor, childcare is hard labor, cleaning is hard labor, and then you are locked in a kitchen and have to sleep on the floor or have to sleep on a table for when you are given that break and then during the day you're then worked again and you maybe only get four hours of sleep a night or so you start to have a mental breakdown where you become very quickly mentally and emotionally abused not to mention the physical effects of not sleeping of sleeping on a hard cold surface uh, and then just this idea of not being able to physically get out and it's so weird for me to juxtapose this because, by the way, these are people who, best case scenario, are getting paid about $300 per month, who then are not getting paid at all. And then when they would attempt to leave, uh, and the men as well, when they would attempt to leave or to attempt to get out of this situation or attempt to seek help 
what often happened because of this black market is then they were then sold to another family undocumented all of their their visas their cell phones all that was taken away from them and they were simply just moved to another place and so that is just insane to me to be to be so cruel to the person who again like you're you're trusting to to be in the house while you sleep to cook for you to care for your children yet at the same time you're perfectly comfortable with having them trapped possibly in Saudi Arabia forever because remember under the Khalafa system you need to have your employer's permission to leave so if you've been moved to five or six employers shall we say from that initial employer you still have to get permission from that initial employer who still holds your documentation and who knows if you can find them and if you find them if they'll release it so it's just a very bad situation and very interesting to me because islamic law is quite firm on slavery and sort of the the cruelty or the the unethical nature of slavery so i think in in saudi arabia right now we're seeing sort of a very similar thing play out as we saw in the ending of antebellum slavery in the u.s where you have a developed nation i mean certainly more developed than the u.s was at the time of the civil war uh a prosperous nation uh, a nation that is is slowly you know building up the idea of the rights of the citizenry and things like that slowly that has this religious law that depending on how people take it is either can either be used in support of maintaining slaves because you're in somehow helping them if they're if they're not muslim versus people who are looking at it and saying that no islamic law is is very firm that the human trafficking is a violent uh unvirtuous sort of haram act and so i think it's it's you're seeing almost the exact same debate that happened in the u.s happen in saudi arabia the problem is is that while this debate is playing out people are dying and severely suffering. And Saudi Arabia certainly has its human rights issues as well. Well, that's why I said it's in the development <laughs> of sort of human rights. Only only because we're starting to see sort of women's rights take a forefront and sort of this movement, particularly I think in response to ISIS, that of, of this defining of what modern Islam is and what the is what a modern Islamic state would actually look like. And so normally, if you would ask me, I'm 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 quite, shall we say, optimistic about Saudi Arabia's possible futures, only because you're seeing kind of very quickly, uh, a sort of rapid opening up, or at the very least having a, a conversation. It's still, like a lot of Middle Eastern countries, not a transparent process with a completely free press, which is upsetting. But I, I want to give sort of the hope that, as we've seen generally, that economic prosperity tends to lead to, to a liberalization of norms. So I'm hoping that that happens here. The other thing that I do take as a as a positive sort of thing is that quite a lot of 
Saudi Arabian elites, which are, you know, scholars, people working within the government, members of the ruling family, et cetera, have, have come out and signed this document uh, about how ISIS is a fundamentally un-Islamic organization and in an open letter talks about how ISIS is disregarding Islamic law completely. And in it, they address slavery directly as this terrible, horrible thing that should not be born. So I at least take that as a positive that if we're going to have an open letter to Baghdadi, uh, which I'll include for all of y'all in the links, because I think it's just a, a great, interesting sort of little piece. But if you're looking at this open letter that talks about slavery directly and why it's inappropriate, I would hope, even though we've seen sort of hypocritical things quite a bit, I, I would hope that there would be some mention about why we as in a, we as in like a Saudi Arabian state needs to completely fight over the ending of, of slavery. And from this open letter in particular, I am going to quote one particular section because I think it's it's an important sort of note. If you haven't looked at the the letter at all, it's great. It's sort of a quick read, but it ties everything directly back into the Quran, which is, a, is, is helpful in terms of just sort of understanding ISIS's position. So in section 12 on slavery, they open up with no scholar of Islam disputes what one of Islam's aims is to abolish slavery. And after, after sort of direct quotes and sort of breaking down the scripture, there's the, there's the statement, after a century of Muslim consensus on the prohibition of slavery, you have violated this. You have taken women as concubines and thus revived strife and sedation and corruption and lewdness on the earth. So that's talking then directly about sex trafficking. I would like it to include men and women, but I'll, I'll take it. Back to quoting, you have resuscitated something that the Sharia has worked tirelessly to undo and has been considered forbidden by consensus for over a century. Indeed, all the Muslim countries in the world are signatories of anti-slavery conventions. You bear the responsibility of this great crime and all the reactions to which this may lead against Muslims. So I'm hopeful, if only because the number of people who have, who have bought into this letter and publicly signed on to it, that people will look at it and sort of take it into direct consideration when thinking about the sort of people who are working in their homes or working in their friends' homes. But the fact remains at the moment, legally, Saudi Arabia has, has such a system that the perpetuation of human trafficking is quite common. Well, and part of our somewhat realist approach to human rights is I would like Saudi Arabia to let women drive if they want to, or, yep. you know, there's the cultural things, more humane ways of capital punishment than beheadings, although I suppose oh, it's I, probably I quick. I would love to see reproductive health rights and sort of women's determination. Right. So we're not, we're not trying to give them a pass, but we're in anti-trafficking and anti-slavery and that sort of control over people and exploitation we consider it progress if a country like Saudi Arabia decides we're going to take this seriously and try to not have people in a state of slavery. Then I'm like, all right, progress. Good. Yeah, I think what's interesting is I don't think – so here's the thing. I want Saudi Arabia to modify its 
legal positionings of the visa system that allows people to be trafficked, the sort of structural things that are implicit here that we've kind of mentioned in brief, sort of this idea that if women are unequal to men, then women have a harder time seeking assistance outside of the home, the tendency of sort of this idea of a family compound, which leads to then the need for domestic workers, all of those things I would love to see changed now. But even if they change, I don't think Saudi Arabia should go above a tier two because this extreme level of sort of cultural or social inequality that is present in the Saudi Arabian law system still makes it makes a lot of people within Saudi Arabia incredibly vulnerable to trafficking. But I think they could come out of the tier two watch list. I think that they could they could move if we're if we're looking at the watch list as purely like a quantitative tool where like you get plus five points for this or minus five points for that. I think that you could see people move from a tier two watch list to just a tier two by addressing some of these legal inequalities. But when it comes time to actually moving beyond a tier two to a tier one, I think then you have to look at like sort of broader state vulnerabilities or human rights abuses. I don't know if you feel the same way, Seth. No, I feel the same way. And this is where we'll also differentiate them from ISIS. Yes, oh, they've yeah. both done beheadings, but and ISIS has intentionally exploited resources. They have destroyed history. It's a lot more destructive in general than Saudi Arabia's order with human rights violations. The sheer level of destruction that has come from ISIS and chaos. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's sort of the destroying of cultural heritage. Mm -hmm. And also, I think, I think the difference being that while a lot of processes that were coming out of Saudi are what we what we in the West or, or we from an American context would define as barbaric, and that certainly are major human rights abuses. There's a reason why Human Rights Watch consistently rates Saudi Arabia at a, at a pretty low rating. I think that the, the fundamental difference here is that one is structured, at least, uh, and mildly transparent insofar as these things aren't happening in secret. Saudi Arabia is quite open about its corporal punishments or its severe punishments. And yes, they unfairly target women. Yes, they directly impact sort of sexual minorities or religious minorities, but they're clear on it. Where ISIS is more of for either ideological or economic gain coming into an area and sort of the mass killings or taking of children of in an effort to do forced conversion is mass kidnapping and killing of religious minorities or, or Muslims that are considered not to be following appropriate Islamic law. And so that to me is the difference is that one is kind of a, a laid out structure that can be observed and the other one is much more fluid and much more sort of non-state actor violence in its, in its methods. Doesn't mean I don't want both of them to fundamentally change. It's just that I want ISIS to be eradicated. I want Saudi Arabia to change and evolve. We have to pursue small victories yes. in this field. Otherwise, we would just get depressed and give up. The world is yeah. not as ideal as we want it to be. And solving problems like trafficking is not just as simple as closing a border or passing a law or anything like that. And so it would be nice if 
we could say to Saudi Arabia, do better. And then they would say, okay, we're going to change these things. And not because you're forcing us to, but because it sounds like good advice. That's just not the way the world works. Mm -hmm. And so if Saudi Arabia can make progress on modern slavery, great. We'll applaud them for that step and we'll build on it. I will say probably it's one of those things where, and I think we've mentioned this in this podcast a number of times, that when you're actually having a breakdown and trying to figure out what would end trafficking uh, the world over, like actually end it, probably the destruction of cultural inequalities and the ending of, yeah, the destruction of cultural inequalities and the ending of global poverty. <laughs> Which is, that's, those are small things. We can totally do that overnight, Seth. I don't know what we've been waiting for. Allowing. <laughs> and, it's, and it's, these are huge problems. These are huge embedded problems in every country in the world. And if you're not ready to or able to as a world solve all these problems all at once which you can't there's no magic wand then you have no other option you have no other option whatsoever except for to try and take small baby steps where you can well and that folks is our saudi arabia podcast for today i hope it was helpful in in some ways to y'all and again this is something that if you are involved in this field at all and you're interested in doing work there are lots of fantastic charities that work um, dealing with people within Saudi Arabia or who have come into Saudi Arabia from other countries. Also, bear in mind that this abuse of domestic workers happens the world over. So just keep an eye out. Look, if if you if the neighbor has a nanny, are they okay? If the neighbor has a gardener, are they okay? And remember, if you even have a slight suspicion, if you're not even sure how to address it or how to communicate, you can always call the hotline, which we will, we've included, I think, in almost every podcast we've done, called the Human Trafficking Hotline, the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And if there's any other country you would like to hear us profile, let us know. And with that, I'll bid you goodbye. I would say it in Arabic if I knew what that was. <laughs> I don't know it either. I'll do it. In, I'll do it in Mandarin. Bye, Jan. Bye, guys. All right. We just needed Rex. He knows Arabic. He'll yeah. tell us later. Next time. All right. Have a good week. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.